Good morning. If you're here, you're visiting, you're new, just welcome. And we hope that uh, the Lord ministers to you while you're here and hope it feels like home. Uh, We're in a study in the book of James, have been since the first year. So if you take your Bibles and open up to the book of James, and uh, however you do that, whether paper or phone is fine. Uh, This morning we're going to enter into one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. And really it's not because it isn't clear, but precisely because it is clear. That's why it's controversial. Uh, Verses 14 to 26 is the section that caused, in chapter 2, is the section that caused Martin Luther to call the epistle of James an epistle of straw. Right? So you can tell he was real pleased with the whole thing. And... um, But before we get into all that, uh, let's just look at the verse. So what we'll do this week is we'll do 14 to 17 uh, together, and then we'll come back next week and we'll connect 14, 17 to 18 to 26, all right? Because it's really a whole block together. So uh, let's look at the first, we'll look at the first uh, three verses, 14 to 17. There we go. Welcome back, Rebecca. (laughs) Good to see you. All right, here we go. James 14 and 17 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? Uh, So let's pray this morning and then we'll launch into this. Father, when it comes to your word, your uh, genius, and there's lots of things that make total sense to you that don't always to us. Help us walk through this this morning, and I pray what we're going to cover will be helpful for everyone, uh, my friends that have come this morning to seek you and honor you and to and to think about what uh, this week will be and, and how to cooperate with you. We ask for your favor in that, Lord, and we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So um, let's give, what I want to do this morning as we get started is give the historical backdrop to this passage, all right? Um, because it, there's, there's a lot going on here. And to understand it, we have to go back through church history to understand the discussion. And it's not a little one, all right? It's a big, big discussion. Uh, we won't be able to cover the entire survey of the historical sweep or discussion, but we should be able to cover a good outline of it and uh, help make sense of it. So Let's go back. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to go to, uh, if you're looking at the outline of church history, we're going to start with A.D. 30 through 50. All right, so that first 20-year burst, that's the initial burst of the church upon the world and the world scene. Uh, This, by the way, incidentally, is when James was writing uh, his book, and it's highly likely that James was the first written book of the New Testament. Right, so he wrote that right during this period right here. We're going to cover more on this later, but it's important to note Jesus was uh, immediate in this stage of the game. He wasn't just an idea or a story or something like that. Um, this is the era of Pentecost, right? And and Peter preaches, and three thousand people come to Christ, and uh, all kinds of stuff was going on in the church. And so uh, Jesus was real. He had impact. And the whole nature of the church was fresh and invigorated. This was also the mission, uh, the missions era of the book of Acts began right here. And so a very dynamic, uh, volatile time of what was going on. Then the next stage is AD 50 to 155 AD. 
So, right, so we pick up right where we left off. And this is persecution, the loss of the apostles and those who knew them, and then the church spreads out. Right? So Paul and Peter are, both have their ministries and then are martyred together in Rome, along with the rest of the apostles. Uh, they all face death in different parts of the world, uh, including James, the writer of this book that we're studying, uh, was killed during this era. <clears throat> uh, the exception was the Apostle John, whose legend is that they tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work, and so they stuck him out on a piece of rock in the Mediterranean uh, called Patmos, and there is where he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, the last in the line of this kind of apostolic succession was Polycarp, the bishop of, of Smyrna. Polycarp was not an apostle, but he was considered as next to uh, the apostles because he was a disciple of the apostle John. Right? And so Polycarp was really uh, close and connected. And because of this, and because of the long life that he lived, he lived till he was 96 years old. Uh, he was a virtual walking theological encyclopedia. And so the famous saying back in that day is, if in doubt, ask Polycarp. Right? If there was some debate that came up, go ask Polycarp. He was John's disciple. He'll know what Jesus said. Right? And so that's kind of how they resolved it. And so the church kind of went into another era once he died because he wasn't there to be uh, consulted. <clears throat> A.D. 155, by the way, is the date of his martyrdom and death. And so I think that's a, a good place to mark an era there. If we move on from 155 to 313 A.D., uh, another 200-year stretch, this is the era of the early church fathers, the terrible persecutions, and then freedom. So as we mentioned, 155 A.D. It was the death or martyrdom of Polycarp. And then, then this is the era of the early church fathers. So you have uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius of Lyons, and others. Uh, this is also the era of, of terrible and, and frightful persecution. This is the era of feeding the Christians to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. So if you ever go there and you get to see it and walk in the Colosseum and wonder when that happened, this is when that happened. Uh, the famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, was coined by the early church father Tertullian during this era. And what he meant by that is you can kill the people, but you can't kill the movement, right? And because you can't kill the Holy Spirit. And it'll just keep cropping up. As fast as you mow them down, they'll spring up faster. And so that has always been kind of the, the call of the church during seasons of persecution. 313 AD is significant in that it was the year that Constantine the Great issued the Edict of Milan, which decriminalized the Christian religion and made it the official faith of the Roman Empire. So the significant 180 flip. Right? The church went from being persecuted to protected. And um, the church flourishes during this area. It begins to dominate during this area. And the church goes from being a persecuted minority to a world power. And this is the era of the Holy Roman Empire throughout Europe. So if you remember your uh, social studies class back in high school or junior high, this is that era right there. Then if we move on, the next era is a long one. 313 A.D. to 1500 A.D. So 1,200 years. That's a long stretch of history. So just put that in perspective. We've been a country for about 300. right? So four times as long as we've been a country is this era we're talking about. Incredible uh, era of history. Hard to read 
there's so much stuff that goes on during this time. But theologically, this is the era of Ambrose of Milan, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and other writers uh, during history at that time for the church. The end stretch of this um, uh, path right here, the last two, three hundred years, this is the time of Michelangelo and the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Right? So that's when, if you ever go there and see that, that's when this was actually built. Uh, this era, 1300 to 1500, was also the era that saw the doctrine of purgatory developed as a theological package, and then also the practice of indulgences become significant in the church. And we'll cover more of that in just a minute. But uh, it was an era of huge corruption. Uh, you don't have to read very far. Uh, just go look up and, and across the board. It's pretty well acknowledged that it was a corrupt era during the church. And then we come to a seminal date, October 31st, 1517, 501 years ago. And that is the beginning of the Reformation. That is Martin Luther posting his 95 thesis on the castle door of Wittenberg. And, um, and his, to understand that uh, and the dynamic of it is that Martin Luther was a priest and he was trying to do the work salvation thing to be a good enough person that he could be saved. And, uh, and the thesis were a direct attempt on his part to reform the church. He did not want to move out of the church. He wanted to reform it and bring it back. Uh, they didn't take to that very kindly, and thus we have um, what we have today. Um, but if you'd like to read further on this, there's just no way to cover this in the morning, but I'd like to give you a, a book that's really a great sweep of the whole thing. It's, I've got it up here too. Uh, Eric Metaxas, he's also done a book on Bonhoeffer, if you've read that one, but he's a great writer, and he really covers the sweep of history uh, through that whole Reformation period. So uh, I'd just recommend it uh, for you. And uh, it's, a gr- it's a great read. I just finished it. So, um, But again, uh, Martin Luther was not trying to, to uh, create a new movement. He was trying to create reform within the Catholic Church. So then another aspect that has to be considered in this discussion is looking at the Catholic Church and the whole idea of the sacramental system and its impacts on the idea of faith and grace and how it was merited. And you're going, this: what is the sacramental system? So this here is uh, the sacramental system. If you were uh, raised Catholic, you're familiar with this as I was. So you have baptism, you're baptized as an infant, and therefore you belong to the church. Then you have your first confession, which is followed by the grace, the church would say, of penance, which means that you uh, confess through your life and then follow the penance that the priest lays out for you, and uh, that creates repentance. Then you have First Communion. Then you have Confirmation, which as a teenager you reaffirm all those beliefs and you own it. Uh, kind of my era, we said the words and didn't connect at all, and it blew right over our heads, and then we went and did our thing again. And then you have the anointing of the sick, for those who become ill. Then you have what's called holy orders and matrimony. So the highest of the grace dispensing were if you were to become a priest or a nun. If you couldn't do that and you were earthy, then you got married and they called that a sacrament as well. But it was a secondary sacrament to the holy orders. So you just 
have to understand that. And then uh, last rites, uh, or otherwise known as extreme unction. Uh, so those are the, the sacramental system. So <clears throat> how this worked was, as I mentioned, as an infant, you're baptized into the church. The church is now your mother. The church is seen as your caretaker. Um, it's very different than we'd understand it. Uh, and the reason the Catholics understand the way is Jesus gave the keys of the church in their minds to Peter. And so the church is the caretaker of these things. And the church uh, was the caretaker of your soul. And so the church saved you. And all the extra means of grace were there uh, to grant greater grace as you step through life. But instead of it being means to grace, often it became kind of your punch list, right? Things to knock out, things that I've got to accomplish, things that I need the piece of paper for, right? And so you went through and checked off the list. And once you got the list checked off, you said, see, I'm, I'm good, I'm in, right? Uh, just like today, if you have to get tabs on your car, you go in, they ask you what you're there for, I need tabs, and you hold them the piece of paper, they go, yes, okay, they, and you, then they say, hand me the money, you hand them the money, they give you a piece of paper, you go stick it on your car, and you're qualified, right? You're now free to drive around because you have accurate tabs on your car. Well, think of that in a spiritual sense, where you now have the tabs stuck to you, and now you have the right to go into heaven. Right, and the more you do, the more you get into heaven. Right, so I mean, it's a it's a interesting system. Now, add to this the idea of indulgences. Right, for us, indulgences are maybe a new idea. So let's explain it. Indulgences uh, were mer- a merit system. Uh, I'll explain it in a second. But you can very easily see how this becomes a works works righteousness system. I do these things, I get this. It really has nothing to do with being connected to Jesus at all. And it really has nothing to do about having any spiritual life or uh, having to come to God because technically in their understanding, you're in God because you were baptized as an infant. So you just keep moving through life like that, adding uh, to your your um, gold star list would be probably the way to put it. Now add to that, indulgences, add to the idea of purgatory. We have to talk about purgatory so indulgences make sense. Abby said, Dad, you used a lot of big words in the first four pages. But then I got you, okay? So, but just keep tracking with these ideas. Purgatory is the idea that when a person dies, you don't go immediately to heaven because none of us are really good in the first place and we've all messed up. So the idea, Dante's Inferno, if you're familiar with that whole thing, Uh, the idea of purgatory was created, which is a middle ground so that when you die, you go from here to purgatory. And in purgatory, uh, you pay often for your sins. And uh, so those of us who sin less are there a short time. Those of us sin a lot were there a long time. But eventually, everybody in purgatory gets into heaven. But purgatory is not a nice place. And so the goal was to try and get out of purgatory. Right, um, so the what the church did then was develop this doctrine of indulgences, which buys you merits, okay, or, or bonus points would be a way to think of it. And how how they talked about it was like this: if they were in a church service this morning, we were talking, they would say, you know, uh, I'm sure you miss Aunt Mary. You know, Aunt Mary was a pretty neat lady, but Aunt Mary wasn't perfect, and Aunt Mary's in purgatory right now. Wouldn't you want to shorten her time of suffering? 
And the way you can do that is by paying the church some money. And if you pay the church some money, the Pope will grant you some indulgences that will shorten the time for marriage. And then the church actually went on to the time by, by Martin Luther's time. Um, you could actually, if you gave enough money, you could actually pay for, you didn't even have to go to purgatory. You could get an indulgence certificate from the Pope that said you went straight to heaven. Right? And so you can kind of see how uh, this system worked uh, together. Um, so you could buy merits for you and your loved ones to free or shorten the time in purgatory. And if you paid enough, you escape purgatory altogether. And you can see how this kind of all came about. By Martin Luther's time, when we're talking 1300 to 1500, uh, the church was incredibly corrupt. This whole practice became a corrupted cash grab uh, by the church to fund their construction projects and their empire. Uh, and if you ever want to go back and read during that time, it's, it's an amazing uh, era and, and it's pretty bad. So it's in this context and in this era of church history then that Martin Luther, himself a priest and struggling with trying to be righteous enough, launches his seminal investigation into the book of Romans and comes up with the focus point uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that righteousness is not based on the law, but rather is based on faith. In other words, what he was directly counteracting was this idea of you can work your way into heaven or earn your way into heaven or pay your way into heaven. He was saying, no, the only way you get into heaven is by faith. And the, the seminal verses that uh, he launched from are found in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, which say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That was, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. And this then becomes the anchor uh, anchor point and the core foundation of the Reformation. Right? So we've just gone through 1,500 years of history. And, uh, and so then when we get to Martin Luther and he looks back and he looks at what James is saying, it feels like there's a contradiction because... What James, remember what James said there in that passage we looked at, so also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? And that's why Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw because it, he felt like it was an epistle that brought us back to the faith works um, that the Catholic Church had. In but remember, when James wrote this, there was no Catholic Church. It was just the church. Right? And it was brand new. And he was writing in the first 15 years or 20 years of the existence of the church. So let's go back and look at it, at the book of James, in this context, because it can appear like we have a discrepancy or a conflict of ideas. Also, if you think about it, uh, this shows up on your doorstep all the time, this theology. This is where our Mormon friends swing the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum with the whole work salvation, right? Oh, you're Christian, you have faith? Well, let me show you my works. Right, And so we have those discussions in our neighborhood on and off every different time. So it's a powerful, powerful idea. The idea that I can work or earn my way into heaven has a powerful pull. And you can see why. If I can, if I can get there by myself, 
then I don't really have to deal with God. I can bypass that. And I can scoot and still get in. Right? And so for us as humans, uh, the issue of judgment, the issue of the power of God and the presence of God is a scary thing. So we often try to figure a way around it. And you can see this even in this short survey we uh, history survey we did here. But in actuality, I want to suggest this morning, there's not a discrepancy, no discrepancy between Paul and James at all. But it, it does help to have clarity, so let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, I want to do this with this diagram here, have you look up on, on the screen. So if you're looking at the diagram, uh, it would be t- to your left, my right. Um, when you're on that side of the line, right, where you're pre-Christ and pre-salvation, you're on that side of the line, what Paul is saying, what Paul was arguing for is you can't reason your way across that line. Like Aristotle would say, you know, the, the power of reason. You also can't get there by miracles. If you see a miracle, it doesn't mean you're saved, it just means you saw a miracle. Right? You can't get there by miracles, you can't get there by cleverness. Have you ever had your children tell you a clever scenario that's intent upon changing your mind about something that they want to do that they already know you're going to say no to? Now, now just hear me out, Mom and Dad. Don't, just, just, just hang in there. Well, let, let, just wait. Let me keep talking. And man, if you listen to it, it's really good, right? I, you're sitting there going, this is clever. This is really, they put some intelligence to this, man. This is awesome. No, but that was really good, right? And that's what God says to us. You know, our, you can't clever our way in. Right along with that, you can't good your way in, right? Um, we do a lot of good stuff, all right? As human beings, lots of good stuff. But our goodness can't get us into heaven because in all that goodness that we have, it's still flawed. We still have the saying of sin, and so we can't get in by our own merits. We can't... Um, Clever our way in. We can't get in by works. And so the question this morning is, what's the key to heaven? How do you actually get into heaven? And I want to suggest this morning, Jesus is the key to getting into heaven. You have to go through him. And that's like, isn't there another option? No, he's the option. But what if I don't like that option? Well, but he's the option. So we're not saved by our good works but rather by God's good work. And what was God's good work? God's good work was sending His Son to stand in our place for our sin uh, and, and taking our shame and dying for our sins, for the sins of the world on the cross. And because He's done that, and because He was raised uh, from the dead by the power of an indestructible life, Scripture says, He therefore is the access person to heaven. There's not a system to get into heaven. There's a person to get into heaven. That person is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So, by placing my faith in and into him. And I want to use the word into this morning. And it's not just placing my faith in him, but into him. And we'll see how that plays out in James later. But by into him, it means I put the eggs in his basket. I take my cards, I take my one and only life, my brain, my heart, and I put that in his basket and say, that's yours now. You are the Lord of that. You have the right to control that. 
I am then saved by faith as I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and I confess with my mouth his name. So here's the key distinction. When you look at this diagram of what's pre-Christ versus post-Christ and pre-salvation versus works of grace. So I cannot be saved by good works. But when I'm saved, I am saved for good works. Does that make sense? I cannot be saved by good works. That can't get me into heaven. But once I'm saved, I am saved for good works. Works of grace is what Scripture would say. Where do you find that, Steve? Uh, One of the best places in Ephesians chapter 2, all-time classic passage. But it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's what we've been proclaiming this morning. You have to place your faith in Christ. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the distinction in the passage. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's if we go back to the diagram, right? If you're in the pre-Christ era, you can't get in for works so that no one would boast. But once you confess Jesus as Lord... Once you cross that line, once you are born again into his life, into his kingdom, then what scripture says is then for we become his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus, what are we created for? For good works. It's not, again, that our good works gain us merit, but it's cooperating. We would call it obedience is a word we'd understand. Right? We're created for works or created for obedience. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that's what we strive to do, is to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, to be obedient. Uh, so we come to learn, to train, to remember on Sunday so that we're ready for the week that we're about to face. Do you know what this week is going to hold? No. Now, you might have some ideas. You may have a few things on your calendar that you have to do. I know odds are good that I'm going to be in California, right, this week. But do I know what the week's going to bring forth? No, neither do you, right? That's the good work we get to step into. That's what Scripture says. It's by faith. You have to live it by faith to step into it. So when we cross that line and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, then God has tasks or assignments or works that he has for us to do as his sons and daughters. So now let's go back to the James passage that we started with this morning and take another look at it. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, James is bringing up a really important question here. We'll get to it in just a second. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly, and this is the illustration he uses, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the very first thing we should note is that this passage, James is writing to the church. These are church people. These are Christians. These are people that have crossed that line. We talked about... Uh, they have crossed the line from being in the world to being in the kingdom of God. Uh, They are people who are literally on the right side of the cross. Uh, No pun intended on that, but they are. 
These are people who have faith, so James is no way suggesting that works can earn a person's salvation. But having said that, he then raises a question that's almost as profound. And here's the question he raises. If someone says they have faith, but they don't have any works, can that faith save them? In other words, the understanding uh, from James is if you encounter Jesus, there should be a difference, there should be a change. Uh, we would say uh, our language would be life signs, right? When a baby's born, if you've ever had children in and, your and, you know, hospital, the first thing that when the baby comes out, right, the doctors check all the life signs. They check respiratory, they check eye dilation, they check blood pressure, they check all this stuff. Uh, because those indicate the life signs that the baby's viable, right? And you expect those life signs to keep going on. Uh, you, you hope you still have blood pressure, right? High blood pressure is no good. No blood pressure is bad, right? So, uh, but you have to have blood pressure to keep on kicking. And so you're looking for those kind of life signs. Likewise, spiritually, when someone comes to Christ, there are understood life signs that uh, the community of faith looks for. The first thing, a couple of things you look for is one, uh, does the person recognize their sin? Suddenly, it's amazing, you come to Christ and all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, all the stuff I've been doing is awful. And then you look back 30 years and realize it's awfuler, right? And the farther you go, the awfuler it gets, right? And that's a life sign, right? You're, there's a recognition, you see yourself the way, is that awfuler a word? You're laughing. I just created another Mitch word. Is that it? Okay. Well, deal with it. And um, I saw those laughs. And so, uh, but, but looking for life signs. So recognition. Sense. Second is a, a love for the word, right? You say, why do you always want us to read through the Bible? And why do you always want us to? It's a life sign. There's a love for God's word if you've been born again by the spirit of God. Uh, another one is uh, a love for the body of Christ. Uh, Half of us, we didn't even know what a church was. And now it's, it's the greatest thing going in the world. And like, how did that change? Well, it's a, a life sign, right? It's something God gave us, God, by his grace. It's a gift, puts in it, it's a life sign. Um, and so there's a lot of things like that that we look for that are life signs. And James is saying, hey, if there's no life signs, you better check if there was a baby. Okay? Was there an actual birth? Because something doesn't seem to be lining up right um, there's not these life signs. And so he's really saying in that passage, hey, church people, you say you're alive in faith, but then there's this situation where there's a person among you who doesn't really have clothes or food and, and you don't help them. How can you say you have faith? What good is that faith? So James there is advocating here, uh, talking about this idea of faith. And in this, James is actually anticipating Paul and what Paul would say in that Ephesians 2 passage where he's saying, if we've been born again, there should be works because God has created works uh, for the salvation, for our salvation. When we're saved in Ephesians 2, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So once we're saved, we become God's workmanship. In other words, he works on us. Any of you ever had God work on you? Sometimes it's very gentle. Sometimes he cranks, right? Mm, oh, right. Love you, Dad. Okay, that's a good thing. But, but literally, when we're birthed in him, when we're born again, we're born again for these good works or uh, what we would call obedience. 
And it's these good works that James says is the evidence of that faith. And thus he asks the question, where are the works? The evidence of that salvation. Because he's saying they go hand in hand. Right? If you have faith, this happens. It's not you have faith and then this never happens. Something's wrong with that equation. And so what James is advocating for is uh, uh, how we would say it in America today is the uh, sit in the pew, listen, I've thrown God my bone. He should be happy. I could have slept in. Therefore, I have faith. And really, we've switched that around. We've made this our work instead of realizing this is our training so that we can go out during the week and do our work. Right? It's subtle. It's, it's a shift, but it's an important one. So James then uses that illustration about the brother or sister, right? And saying, oh yeah, go in peace, be warm, be filled. What he's saying is, you're not seeing it through Jesus' eyes. You're a believer. You should see it through Jesus' eyes, right? You should help. So James here, when he's writing this, I want to show you that he's actually echoing what he wrote earlier. Uh, We covered James 1. That seemed like four ages ago, but it was really only last month. Uh, Remember what he said in, in chapter 1? He said this, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Right? And so for James, this is a big deal. Right? He's, he's, he's emphasizing, again, if you put the word uh, obedience where the word works is, uh, it reads much clearer for us uh, in our modern mind. Jesus stated this. Right? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Being a doer is nothing more or less, uh, another way to look at this, is being a doer is nothing more or less than being a disciple. A disciple is a person who follows Jesus and does what Jesus asks them to do, right? Or we would call it a follower of Christ. The word Christian was first coined of people who were followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, right? Christians, followers. And so that's where this language comes from. Remember, James is writing not now, not in the 1500s. James is writing way back in the beginning, right? When they, when they started this whole thing. So we're going to come back to some of this next week. But the key idea here is that once we're saved and the Holy Spirit comes into our life, there should be life signs, right? Uh, you know, when you go to the doctors, what's the first thing they tell you? Can I check your pulse, right? So... Scripture says, check your pulse. Are you alive? And, and are there evidences of that salvation and obedience that occurs because of that salvation? Now, it may sound like James is harping on that, and I think there's a reason he was. Right? Why would James, why would this be such a big point to James? Well, certainly it was because he was the bishop of Jerusalem. That's a fairly big role. Right? And the church was going through persecution, so uh, he had a lot on his plate in terms of trying to take care of people and stuff. But I want to suggest to you it was more seminal than that, and it goes back further than that. I think the reason that James, it was such a big issue for him, is because James listened a lot. Who did he listen to? He listened to his brother. Who was his brother? Jesus. Did James naturally engage with his brother Jesus? Yes, he did, in a mocking kind of way, 
Hey, Mr. Big Prophet Britches, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show them who you are? Right? Matter of fact, they, the family thought Jesus was off his rocker and they went as mom and brothers, it says, and they grabbed them to kind of bring Jesus home and hopefully he'd sleep it off and he'd be a little better and wouldn't be so wacky. Right? So James was good at listening to his brother, but he wasn't really good in engaging with his brother. Well, you can imagine in hindsight when James actually comes alive to faith and actually comes alive and realizes his brother is the Messiah. Could, would that be trippy? Man, that would end a lot of fights at home, wouldn't it? But just imagine how that blew his mind open to, oh my gosh, I never followed through with the stuff he asked me to follow through. So for James, it was hugely important on the follow-through side. Why? Because he realized he hadn't followed through. Okay? And is follow-through a big deal with God? Yes, it's a big deal with God. Do we lose our salvation if we don't follow through? No. But are there incredible dangers to that? Yes. And we're going to look more at that next week uh, at the extension of the passage. right? But let's close this morning and we'll close in prayer and come back next week. Father, I hope this uh, was helpful and I hope the walking through of a works-based system versus a faith-based system um, helped people sort through that and I hope the survey on church history made sense and what reactions were to what going on in the Reformation. Lord, uh, that same thing is going on today. Lord, we are so performance-oriented and uh, so eagerly believe that our performance will carry the day instead of realizing it can't carry the day, which is what Scripture is telling us. It can't carry it, even if it's really good. Lord, the fact that we have to come to you through that key, through that door that's you, that salvation is in a person, not a method. And uh, Lord, to respond to you in the way that you've asked to be responded to is really through the heart of faith is really the essential component this morning. So we ask this morning that you'd help us understand it's an and both, not an either or, that when we come to you and by faith, there should be life signs. There should be evidences. There should be, as James would call it, works. Help us with that as we think through our week and what we're going through. Help us think of how to cooperate in the works that you have designed for us and the plans you have for us. And we give that to you in faith. Ask this in your son's name. Amen.